Amen. Uh, as Mark shared with you, my, uh, my father passed away this past week, and so uh, it is with a very heavy heart that I stand before you. Um, it's, been, it's been a long season. So uh, thank you for those of you who have been praying for me and for my family in the loss of both my mother and father in the past month, and so uh, I do appreciate it, and I know that the Lord will give me strength uh, as, we, as we navigate this time together. And what greater hope do we have than that our Abba Father loves us as evidenced in and through uh, the person and work of Christ who has come. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 3, we'll be in verses 14 through 24. Uh, and as you're turning there, I uh, just want to remind you of uh, what this sermon is about and, and that it's, it's that God's judgment in the fall makes redemption possible through his promised Savior. That's a, that's a pattern that gets set up throughout all of Scripture, that, uh, that whenever judgment does in fact fall, there is always redemption in the midst of it. That is critically important for us to remember uh, as, as we are God's people, that his discipline is always to draw us back to him. His judgment when it falls is always to make a way for us to come to him. Uh, and one of the reasons that he's so harsh on Satan himself and cursing him personally is because he messed with his children. That's something that I think many of you can understand is the intensity of love and protection that the Lord our God has for his children. And so uh, as we uh, come this morning to this sermon, I, I do want to ask you, and I think it's important as we begin the Advent season for you to think about this question. Now, we won't have a lot of time to think about it here this morning because I, I know uh, radio silence is not something we enjoy uh, as a large group, but uh, this is something you should think about uh, it, today and in the coming days. What is your focus this Advent season? We, we all have things that we are focused on and things that we feel like are the tyranny of the urgent within any given season, right? Uh, some of you feel the pressure of, because you do not have your Christmas shopping done a week ago, that somehow you're about six months behind. And that's not entirely true, as it turns out. Or, or maybe you feel the pressure of just all of the familial activities that come with the holiday season. And not just familial, but work activities and church activities and all of the hustle and bustle. It is interesting that uh, this season is so characterized by kinetic activity when actually what Scripture calls for it to be is a time of great patience and waiting and reflection. That being said, this is why we as God's people have a phenomenal opportunity to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of a very anxious and overwrought and worn out culture. How many of you would like for me to go off on a political conversation? How many of you are just tired of that entire conversation? You're so weary. Uh, how many of you would, 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 would want to bring up yet again uh, some, something in terms of economics or the shortfalls that we have in and of our own uh, uh, pocketbooks and situations. I mean, we, we just grow weary of some of these things. And yet what the, the Lord does is provide a regular space in time, not just the weekly Sabbath, but even within the calendar itself, a time where we could step back and reflect and honestly take assessment of what is most important. And so I come back to the question, what is your focus this Advent season? Maybe you don't even have one. Maybe you're just so harried, you, you, you can't, it just feels like all the balls are in the air and you can't focus on any one of them. That is also contra what the Lord would have us to be as his people in the Advent season. So what is it that's most occupying your mind? 
What are you most concerned with? Is it that the Lord would be glorified in and through the events of this Advent season? As his people, that should be our focus, and there's a myriad of ways that that can happen in his creative ordinance and will, which is so beautiful. But we have to be mindful of that because it just doesn't come natural to, it, to us, does it? We don't naturally make the move to, to, to make sure that what we do glorifies God. And so the Lord is calling us uh, to, as his people, make that move and to think those things and to hold each other uh, accountable in the best sense of that word in encouragement and creativity uh, that we would be able to navigate these things in a way that honors and glorifies him. Because that's been the point from the beginning, right? The whole reason that he creates humanity is to uniquely display his glory in a way that platypuses and different kinds of mushrooms and beautiful flowers and amazing fish just can't, right? The greatest vista in this world does not come close to, to having the honor and glory that his creation, his created ones, his people have. And it's important for us to remember that. That's why we read Psalm 8 and then sang a version of Psalm 8 uh, to the tune of Amazing Grace. Because we have to remember that, that, that while we are not the most important thing in the universe, we're not. That's the tension here, right? But we are God's chosen ones on whom he has bestowed and crowned honor and glory and has granted dominion over all of the creation that is, that is his and that he created and that is so beautiful and ought to be uh, sustainably dealt with in a way that honors and glorifies him. And oftentimes we forget that, don't we? We reduce ourselves to mere worms as if we were the ones who were cursed. What well, Genesis 3 is going to show us, he doesn't curse us. And that's important, but I think we act as if, we did, as if he did. And that we are so broken and we are so worm-like that we are of no value at all. And that's just not true. All right, if you would give uh, your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Just again, to set up where we are, we're kind of starting in the middle of the story, right? So the fall has already happened in the sense that, uh, that Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She was told, as was Adam, do not touch this tree. You've got access to every other good thing. And if you remember, the serpent comes in. While Adam remains silent, the serpent talks. And Eve gets her theology twisted and says, this looks good for eating. And she takes, partakes, and Adam partakes. And then all of a sudden they notice that they are naked and that something is wrong and that something is broken. And then when they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, instead of rushing toward him as they would a loving father, they ran from him in fear. And they hide. And if you remember, God is not interested in playing hide and seek with them. He wants them to understand what it is, in fact, they have done. And so he says, Adam, where are you? If you remember, Adam, in the first great move uh, of kind of trying to wriggle out, and he does work that Satan would have been very proud of, he said, It's not my fault. You made her. You set this in motion. Now, think for just a second. How many times do we continue to make that argument in the midst of our own sin and suffering? It's frequently uh, uh, what we use in terms of trying to, um, trying to explain evil or sin. It's not, it can't really be our fault. God set all this in motion. 
And we sound just like Adam hiding from the loving father who says, come to me, don't run from me. And so uh, after he deals with Adam's uh, trying to wriggle out of it, God then turns and pronounces what will be the effects of the fall. So pay close attention to what God's word says and listen uh, for how he deals specifically with each of the three parties that are involved. And this has a tremendous impact on us. He deals first with the serpent, and this is the cursed enmity between the children and the son's ultimate victory. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice who God turns to first. In terms of the pronouncement of the curse, he specifically addresses the serpent, which we know the serpent is Satan from other places in Scripture, Revelation 12, Revelation 20, referred to Satan specifically as the serpent or the dragon or that ancient beast. And so this is Satan that he's speaking to personified in a serpent. And he says very clearly, because you have done this, and, and notice he says, you are cursed. And notice what also he says to him. He says, and you will crawl on your belly, you shall go. And so a lot of times people think, well, so did snakes have legs? And they got their legs knocked off in the fall? No, what he's saying to the snake who was already on his belly is that he would constantly live knowing he has been defeated. That his defeat would be what defines him, which is one of the reasons that Satan is so angry and so wants to not just harm the image of God, not just get you to be followers, but as we saw in 1 Peter 5, he's looking for food. Those who run around biting the heads off of bats and sacrificing goats and carving 666 into their forearms actually are bad for his business. Remember what he is. He's an angel of light. One of the great disservices we've done to our understanding of Satan is we've turned him into something hideous, something demonic in the, in the most twisted sense of what that is. Instead of recognizing that he actually looks a lot like us and he talks a lot like we do. And he is uninterested in you looking anything like him. He wants you gone. Because he knows that the thing he can't do is change your ability to bear the image. Therefore, it must be completely destroyed. It's the only way that he could ever in any way, shape, or form think that he could have victory. And so notice that because he's going to have to crawl on his stomach in constant state of defeat, that the only thing he will be able to consume is dust. Now, what this is pointing to is that his food would be the, 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 basically the effects of sin and death. Out of dust you were and dust you shall return, something that, uh, that is said to Adam a little bit later on. So Satan is constantly feeding on the effects of death in his defeat. And notice what else God does. He says, all the days of your life. What did he just say? Your time is limited. You will not decide. I will decide when it is done. 
And so he has put boundaries around Satan. And then the next thing that he does is he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now this is very important because what God is essentially saying is, you swayed her and turned her your way and that will never happen again. She will never again turn to you, Satan, for understanding anything. I am going to guarantee this in the sovereignty of the Lord. If you want to talk about election and predestination, it is this, that enmity that's been placed where God has made it clear, never again will my children fall for you. There will always be the opportunity for a difference. They will always be able to see that you are of one kingdom that is fallen and I am of one kingdom that is victorious. What a gift to us as people who are so easily fooled. And so he says further that there will come a son, there will come an offspring, there will come a child who will bruise or crush your head. At long last, you will be defeated and you will strike his heel. Now, this is what's important to us. Many theologians refer to this passage as the proto-evangelon or the first gospel, that it's the declaration of the coming Christ. And what we see is not only does Christ defeat Satan, and don't miss this in what's being said, he will also bear the stroke that will come from Satan so that we will not have to bear that stroke. And praise be to God that he is the son who will come. He is the promised one. And so what we see here is there will be a difference. Now, these children are not natural offspring. That's really important for us to understand. They're spiritual children. It's not, so here's what's important. So it's not like a bad luck of the draw, right? You just got bad to, born to bad genetics, so therefore, anybody who says, well, I don't have a choice in the sense that, uh, no, you don't decide whether or not you're going to be saved. God's the one who ultimately decides those things, but you are not rendered a foregone conclusion based on to whom or what you are born or where. That is very important. We know this from Romans 9. Paul picks this up when he says, all who are of Abraham are not of Abraham. Just because you're born to the good side or you're born to the supposed bad side doesn't leave you with no hope. Praise be to God that he redeems. In fact, if you paid attention to some of the names you may have recognized, which by the way, there's some really great baby names in that genealogy. <laughs> I hope you took notes. But many of those names you would recognize as, wait a second, Lamech? We'll hear a little bit about Lamech next week. And if you remember, Lamech's the guy who starts polygamy. And he starts polygamy because he thinks he's bigger and badder than Cain. And he decides, I can't just say, I can't sing this to one wife. i got to have loads of wives. And he's in the lineage. He's a terrible person. He caused some real problems with the idea of polygamy that he unleashed upon creation. There were some other names in that list as well that you may recognize that probably I wouldn't put them in there. I wouldn't admit to that being one of my family members. And so it's important that we recognize that this is not an issue of if you're born to the wrong family, stinks for you. Or if you're born to the right family, you don't have to worry about your faith. You, you're born into it. You don't have to cultivate anything. You can do whatever you like. That's not what's being said here. 
But the promise for us, the thing that we must take away, is that God is guaranteeing in the middle of uh, the wreckage of the fall that there, there is promised redemption. And we, as his people during this season, while we look back to the birth of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, we, with great hope and anticipation, look forward to the return of Christ when all things will be made new. And that should affect how we live between the now and the not yet. We should be a people who function with great hope. Listen to what John Currid, uh, Old Testament scholar, says about this. He says, the remainder of Scripture is an unfolding of the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. Redemption is promised in this one verse, and the Bible traces the development of that redemptive theme. So, What are some ways that you have experienced the enmity that exists between uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve in Christ? You may say, that's a strange way to ask the question. Maybe, but I think it's important for us to remember that we're part of a lineage, we're part of a family, we are part of a redemptive story that spans the totality of history. Too often we see ourselves as kind of individualistic mercenaries. It's important for us to remember we are part of a lineage and we are caught up in a war that was intended to actually display the glory of God. And so it's important for us to recognize when we find ourselves at enmity and how there should be a distinction, how it shouldn't just be blended and compressed for the sake of peace, peace where there is no peace. We shouldn't call evil good and good evil. And what gives you hope that Christ is ultimately victorious in this war? Even better, how do you live that out, especially during this season? Interestingly, this is a season in which people are a little more inclined uh, to, uh, to, to hear some measure of the gospel. And so are we leveraging this time in prayer? Are we leveraging this time in terms of how we gather together and the things that we share and the kinds of things that we're inviting people into? Are we telling and living the story? If you would turn back to the text, let's look at 16 through 19. And again, we are so familiar with Genesis 3 at times, I think that we, we, we are blind to what's being said. So pay close attention to where the word curse shows up. Because I think this, is, this becomes critical to our understanding of true anthropology or biblical anthropology. Listen to what the text says. To the woman, he being God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now it's interesting. Did he curse Eve? Did he say, Cursed are you, Eve, with pain? You may say, But that pain of childbirth feels pretty cursed. I gotta be honest with you, right? But here's what's interesting 
Remember what, uh, what the cultural mandate was, what it was that they were created for. So what was it that Adam and Eve were created to do? Well, be fruitful, multiply, have children, right? And have dominion over the earth and that God would always provide what was needed in and through the earth. Now, did you hear that that mission, that purpose has not changed at all? It didn't change. She will still do what? Bear children. Adam will still do what? Gain food from the ground over which he has some measure of dominion, though it is diminished. What is actually cursed in this text? The ground. Which, going back to last week when Wes Calton uh, preached from 2 Peter 3, 11 through 17, and, and also the previous text, this is why the earth must be purified. Because the ground itself has been cursed. It's why it must be burned up with fire and purified. Something we often miss. And so notice that their purpose, their mission, their reason for being has not changed. However, what has changed is their ability to do it without pain and to do it in such a way that allows them to enjoy the full uh, benefit of being in communion with God. There is now a separation. And notice where the fracture lines fall. They've been separated from the Lord their God. They have been separated from each other. Notice what it says. It says, uh, when he's speaking to Eve, he said, you will desire, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Theologians have spilled a ton of ink trying to figure out exactly what this passage means, and there's lots of different opinions. But if we look at the sweep of Scripture, and we look at how Paul commands husbands to love their wives and wives to love their husbands, what we see, I think, very clearly in connecting those things is that the headship of Adam was fractured. He should have served his family, served his wife well. Notice he remains silent as the snake is talking and contradicting the very words of God. He doesn't correct Eve either when she gets it twisted. So he had already failed to love as he ought to have loved his family. And so what, what will happen is, since he's a failure, somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody's got a rule. Why not her? And notice how he's going to respond to having his power overthrown with what? Tyranny and a wicked fist. No, he will not lift her up to be holy and blameless and wash with the water of the word. Instead, he will tear her down and remind her of her failure always. So the fracture lines are now in the family itself, not only between God, but between Adam and Eve and the entirety of the family. Notice that the pain of childbirth is not just physical, is it? Those of you who are parents. The pain is knowing that your child is not guaranteed to be a child of God. The pain is knowing that your child could actually become part of the seed of the serpent and be lost. The guarantee was lost in the brokenness of the fall. And so the pain is that there is enmity at times within your own home, with your own children. And nothing rends a parent's heart like that. 
And so there's fractures in the totality of the family. There's fractures in and of themselves. Their own purpose is fractured. There's fractures between them and creation. So all of the relationships are shattered at once, but not irreparably lost. Again and again, God makes it clear, you will bear children. The ground will feed you and your family, but it both will cost you. I still love you, is what God is saying. But I cannot be unjust. I cannot turn a blind eye to your failings. Listen to what Graham Goldsworthy says about this in Gospel and Kingdom. He says, grace is seen in the maintenance of some semblance of society. The image of God in man is not entirely obliterated, and hence man retains some dignity over the rest of creation. Man and woman continue to relate and to propagate even though the relationship is corrupted. The universe, in order to remain under humanity's domain, and despite its ongoing challenge to humanity's domain, is made to fall with man. So what are some of the ways that you have experienced the intrusion of fracturing of relationships as a result of the fall? How many of you would say that, oh, those of you that are married, it's, it's so easy. It's, just, it's the easiest thing in the world. You, just, you, just, you, you wake up, breath smells good, hair is already fixed. Uh, just every need supplied in both directions. The, the race to humility is just blinding. Uh, <laughs> no. In fact, as you go, in some measure, you discover it's actually, it gets harder. As you discover how deep and great your brokenness is and how great your desire for self is over the glory of God. As I said, my wife and I just celebrated 19 years and I've said to you many times and this still remains true. I love her more now than I did at the beginning. But do you know one of the reasons that I love her more? Because she stayed with me and I know what I am. Because she has continued to fight for me to be uh, a man after God's own heart. She has continued to, like that first rib, seek to protect my heart and my mind and my soul. And I have given her more and more and more to work with and against. And she continues to labor so beautifully. And it's because I realize just how broken and, and distant and fractured I am all the way down. And so that's one of the ways that we experience the intrusion and fraction of those relationships, but we also remember the promise, right? So what best helps you to continue participating in the mission of God despite the struggle? What is it that most encourages you to continue doing the things that are, that are most difficult for the sake of the kingdom of God? Relationships of all kinds are difficult. Those of you who, I'm sure we could tell stories upon stories just from this past Thanksgiving of how difficult family can be. There's always that one cousin that wants to talk to the pastor about the gospel of Thomas and its credibility. But I won't tell that story. Turn back to the text, if you would, Genesis 3, 20 through 24. This is the sorrow of exile and the promised redemption east of Eden. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, of, eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, we're so familiar with this aspect of the story, we need to be careful that we don't miss the details. For Adam to call his wife Eve, which means she's the mother of all living, that is Adam confessing that he believes in the promise of Genesis 3.15. That is him confessing that in faith he believes that Eve is exactly who God said she is. Notice the difference in tenderness that is now no longer him blaming Eve solely for the problem. And notice the restoration in his ability to name her of his headship, his servant headship. To name something means, in some measure, you have authority over. Now, that makes some of you bristle, but this is an, a servant's authority. This is an authority that builds up, not tears down. So in this moment, we see Adam, in essence, saying, Lord, I believe you now. And notice what God does. And again, theologians have wrestled with whether or not this is the first sacrifice. I don't know how you get garments of skins without killing something. I don't know if they were just laying around. I don't know how this works. But what I do know is this, is that God saw that the covering that they had was insufficient for them to be able to display his glory in the world. And what's most important is that we recognize God uh, took care of that insufficiency and covered them adequately in whatever it was that happened here because he loves them. He's not sending them east of Eden ill-equipped for life. In fact, he's sending them east of Eden with everything they will need to continue to do what it was they were created to do, though it is from the ground from which they were taken. And notice, too, what God says. He says, behold, the man has become like one of us in this, knowing the difference between good and evil. It's not that they had become, that, that, that Adam and Eve had become like the Trinitarian display of the attributes of the good things of God, which is necessary before you know anything about the difference between good and evil. To just know the difference between good and evil without having some sort of ethic and rubric already in place and attributes displayed is a really bad idea. It's why you don't sit your kids down and say, all right, you're three. This is a horror movie. It's called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's why you don't sit your kids down and, and teach them the difference between good and evil. You don't, you, don't, you don't walk them through Schindler's List at age five. You don't show them the other nefarious things that are available on the internet before they have an understanding of what and where to place those things. And so here God is saying he, that Adam and Eve had become like them in the worst possible sense, and if they were stuck that way, it would destroy them. So in great love, he cast them out so that they wouldn't be sealed in their destruction. And if they were to become eternal, why would they need to have children? So they would have forsaken the very purpose for which they were created and not been able to be redeemed in and through the lineage. I was listening to a, a podcast. I've mentioned this guy before. He's in a band that, that I like for all the wrong reasons. 
It's called Pedro the Lion. The guy's name is Dave Bazan, and he was a Christian at one time. And he said that the thing that actually drove him out of Christianity was when his daughter was born, he began to read Genesis 3 different. And how he reads this text is that God is casting them out cursed. He's casting them out to die. And he could never, he actually said, I could never think of doing that to my daughter. He was so close to the heart of God and yet so far. His misreading of this text, our misreading of this text leads us into some really dark places. When we view ourselves as just trash with no hope whatsoever of ever displaying the the glory of God. And, And hear me rightly, we must be redeemed in Christ for that to make sense. There is no salvation apart from Christ. But there is no one who walks this planet who does not bear the image. How do we know that? Well, we'll, we could, I think we'll read this as part of Genesis 9 when it says the reason you can't murder folks is because they bear the image. And too often, I think we reduce ourselves way too far when instead God is saying, you are my beloved children. We'll read in Galatians 4, which will serve as our benediction for this Advent series, how much he loves us and longs for us to be heirs of his and have everything we need so that we could cry, Abba, Father. That's not cheap grace. As you see, it's incredibly costly. As they're cast out, God does what is necessary to keep them from destroying themselves. He places cherubim, which we know are not little fat uh, angels that fly around with with the sucker arrows that just stick to stuff that don't hurt anybody. Uh, These are terrifying beings. If that weren't enough, there's a flaming sword that turns in every direction just in case they got squirrely and thought they could get past the cherubim. He loves them so much that he doesn't want them to touch the thing that could kill them. And he casts them out, not not purely in judgment, but in redemption and discipline. And so as they go east of Eden, they will actually fulfill the purpose for which he created them. The lineage of the woman will go forward and it will be fulfilled in Christ. Listen at what Sidney Gradenus says. He says, in banishing his rebellious creatures from his presence in paradise, God still extends his grace in order eventually to restore paradise on earth. So have you ever experienced God's grace in the midst of his judgment or discipline? This is a question you should really think about. In fact, I want to challenge you to spend some portion of this Sabbath Lord's Day considering the question. Because if you can't ever come up with God's grace being extended to you in the midst of discipline or judgment, one of two things is deeply wrong. Either you have a really, really bad theology of who you are, meaning you think that you've never done anything wrong and never really required grace. Or you have a really, really bad understanding of God and think that anytime he does anything, it's just to be mean to you. Either way, it's not good. And so it's important that we be able to go back and see of the times that the Lord has exposed us, of the times that he has justly brought our sin into the light, it was always to heal and redeem us, even though it dang near may have killed us. I certainly experienced this. There's a passage in Numbers that I just hate. Uh, and I know that's not nice for a preacher to say. I, I just, I, and I don't hate it in the sense of, I just, it, I, 
I just wears you out sometimes. But it says your sin is going to find you out. And I love that it's true, but I hate what I've had to go through to learn it's truth, is what I really mean. There have been a couple of different situations where the Lord warned me. He said, I'm going to expose you on something with the people that you are sinning against, which was grace in and of itself to warn me so I could buckle my chin strap for what was coming. And yet, one of the most gracious things I have ever experienced happened in my wife's forgiveness of what she found out. And how she continued to hold to the covenant that she had made, even though, even though I couldn't have been mad at her if she'd have walked from it. And so, we need to be a people who are able to recognize God's grace in the midst of his judgment and his discipline because most of the world that doesn't believe in God just thinks he is a cosmic killjoy longing to just hurt us. Too many Christians think that. And so we need to be able to have fast upon our lips testimonies of the time that God has been good in the midst of our brokenness. Instead of all of these grand stories of how awesome we are and all that we've done. So again, I want to challenge you to consider this day and even share as a family, certainly at age-appropriate level, how you've experienced God's grace in the midst of his judgment and discipline. So Genesis 3, 14 through 24 teaches us these, at least these three things. And what's so beautiful is that it's, 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 it's that in despite of all of the negative that comes, God's promise holds. So it teaches us that despite the enmity and war between the seeds, that Jesus Christ will ultimately be victorious. It is not up for grabs, and we need to quit living as if it is. Second, it teaches us that despite the fracturing of every single one of our relationships on every level, that the mission of God continues unchanged. You still have everything you need to be able to glorify the Lord your God. The question is, are you cultivating it? Third, that the sorrow of exile, despite the sorrow of exile, we will one day dwell with God in Christ in paradise for an eternity. And that is being prepared east of Eden. We are participating in that between the now and the not yet. Listen to what Warren Austin Gage says. And I love the way he says it. He says, the first Adam, for the first Adam, the tree of knowledge brought death. But the last Adam knew death upon the tree bringing life. Adam had made a grave of a garden, but Christ will make a garden of a grave. So, as we begin this Advent season, I want to encourage you, again, to find space to slow down and to be reflective and to think about the goodness of the Lord our God and all that he is doing in the midst of what at times feels like meaningless judgment and despair. And may we be a people who are able to articulate that to our neighbors and our loved ones and all those around us in ways that are winsome and that are true and that are beautiful and they're meaningful. But that doesn't come natural. You have to cultivate it. You have to cultivate it in prayer. You have to cultivate it in your understanding of the word. And you have to cultivate it in the enacting of mission itself. It just doesn't come natural to us, does it? So as we close out this first sermon for the Advent series, I want to pray for us. 
Um, and uh, I want to encourage you, like I said, to take time this day and consider again the grace of God in the midst of judgment and discipline. Fathers, we come before you. We give you thanks that the fall didn't have the final say. In fact, it was a beginning for your people in a way that was not possible prior to it. It gave us an opportunity to see just how much you love us, an opportunity to see how deep your love for us and how deep the work of Christ is applied to us. Help us to remember that we are not cursed, but we are caught up in the effects of the curses, that we are caught up in the war, the enmity between the seeds, and that we do in fact need redeeming. Though we are not cursed, to be cursed just means that we would be condemned to hell. But we do need to be redeemed in the personal work of Christ that does need to be applied to us so that we could display your glory as image bearers. Help us remember that it is not the image that has been torn from us, but our ability to see it. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear your pronounced word over us. God, help us to remember that you love your children. You are not cruel. You are good. In Christ's name, amen.